Before we continue um, to our message today, we wanted to take a few minutes for a special prayer. As many, many of you, I'm sure, have been following the news, and our world is a challenging place sometimes, and there's a whole lot of violence and a whole lot of war. And so we want to spend a few minutes praying specifically for the conflict in Israel and the Gaza Strip. But we want to also acknowledge that there is violence and war in a lot of different places. And still in the Ukraine, um, there is violence and a lot of natural disasters, too, that have happened recently, such as the earthquakes in Afghanistan that have displaced a whole lot of people. And so I want to take just a few minutes to collectively, as we process some of this news, um, to pray together. Uh, someone I, I spoke with a, a, a few months ago gave me some advice that was really helpful for me because I'm easily overwhelmed by the news. And, and one of the things she said, me was, she said to me was, I only intake as much news as I can pray, pray over. And, and I was thinking today, um, again, as I was looking at the news, how prayer, we are called to prayer, especially when we hear about what's going on in the world. And so we want to do that together in community. So I'm going to start us off, and then I'm going to just take a few minutes of silence and invite you to lift your prayers up to God, and then I'll conclude. Creator God, we come to you today our hearts heavy with what's going on in the world. So we cry out to you and lift up our prayers. Creator God, you know and love your creation. You desire for all people to live in peace and in harmony. We pray for peace. We long for peace between the people of both Israel and Gaza. We grieve the violence. We grieve the death and the destruction that has taken place this last week. And in the face of escalating violence in a humanitarian crisis, we pray for the end of the violence. God of all comfort, please be with all those who mourn. Be near to those who are torn apart by this war and all wars. Lord, we pray for all the families who've been displaced and who have no safe place to go. Protect them and provide for them. Strengthen all those in positions to provide aid and assistance. And in the midst of decades of hatred between Israel and Palestine, we pray for paths of forgiveness and paths of reconciliation that lead to peace. Teach your people, Lord, to model unity and reconciliation across lines of division. God of all nations, we pray for the leaderships in Israel and in Gaza. We pray that they will work together to build a future where Israelis and Palestinians can live in peace. 
We pray for communities in which Jews and Christians and Muslims can live in harmony and love each other. God of love, teach us, teach us all, wherever we're at in this world, to love each other as you have loved us. And Lord, we join, we join Jesus in the prayer. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, and thank you for sharing your heart and uh, leading us in that prayer. Today we get to nearly conclude our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, We've been in this uh, for some time now. We're going to read the final uh, verses of the Gospel of John today, Um, and then we are going to, uh, next week, actually conclude the series. Uh, It's been a long journey. The Gospel of John is written by a man named John, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his apostles, who late in his life sat down to write an account of all that he experienced with Jesus and who he came to believe Jesus to be. So we get to read the words of an eyewitness, a a firsthand witness, someone that was there and walked with Jesus, heard him teach and saw him perform miracles, saw him crucified, and then saw him risen from the dead. We get to read that account. And today, we find ourselves in the second half of a story that we began last week, so I need to give a little bit more context. Uh, Having risen from the dead, thank you, Jamie, Having risen from the dead, Jesus had begun appearing to his apostles and other followers, began appearing and, and, and uh, sharing the good news and the hope of resurrection. Death has been defeated in resurrection. And uh, on one such occasion, Jesus uh, goes out to his disciples who are out fishing. You see what's happened is shortly after Jesus' death, uh, just lost and confused, they've kind of gone back to their old ways of being. I don't know what else to do, so let's just go fishing. Many of them were fishermen when Jesus called them to be his disciples. So they go out fishing one night. Uh, This is last week's message, and you're welcome to go back and recap the whole thing. But for now, the abbreviated version is they go out, they fish all night long, and they get zero fish. Jesus shows up on shore, and he hollers out to them, Hey, how's the fishing going? How many did you catch last night? And they don't realize it's Jesus yet. Uh, And so swearing under their breath, they say, We haven't caught anything. Uh, Jesus says, hey, maybe try throwing, casting your net on the other side of the boat. This is like a seven or eight foot wide boat, right? This is not a great strategy for actually catching fish. Uh, But of course, they throw the net out and uh, and they catch catch so big they can hardly hold it in the net. And uh, they realize in this moment it's Jesus. Peter, one of the most impulsive and one of the ones in biggest crisis right now, we'll get into it in the text today, uh, realizes it's Jesus. He throws back on the clothes that he had taken off while fishing, and he dives into the water, and he swims to be with Jesus. We talked last week about the climax of this tale. It's not a miraculous catch of fish, which was is miraculous and is amazing, but the climax was the invitation for his closest followers to sit at his feet and share a meal together on the shore. The, the climax of this tale in the story is reuni- being reunited 
in the presence of Jesus. And so today that story continues. And uh, last week they sat and they ate that meal. This week now, Jesus is going to engage conversation with the group, primarily though with Peter, who had just recently, as Jesus is being tried, denied even knowing Jesus, right? He, he denied, I do not know that man. I swear I do not know him. And in that moment, Jesus locks eyes with them and he is absolutely crushed. So Jesus is coming back to one of his closest followers and engaging the kind of betrayal, uh, the denial, and all that was Jesus is going to bring to the forefront. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the, ta- at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. So the question on the table from Jesus to Peter, who has just denied him, do you love me? It seems a valid question. It seems quite relevant. Jesus has taught his disciples throughout his ministry uh, that the world will know you are my follower by your love. So Jesus comes back to a man that had just denied him, that had just abandoned him in his, in his darkest hour, um, and he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers three times, but did you notice he kind of doesn't answer? Each time, instead of saying, yes, Jesus, I love you, he says, you know I love you. He, he kind of puts the onus back on Jesus as though, well, you should already know that. In fact, at one point he says, you know all things. You know that I love you. And I wonder what the holdup here is and why it is that Peter doesn't just say, I love you in simple terms. It happens three times. Do you love me? God, Jesus, you know that I love you. 
And I think the question being posed is much less Jesus needing to hear the words, I love you, from Peter, and much more for the sake of Peter in this moment. A man broken, feeling confused, I don't know what comes next. A man feeling the guilt and the shame of having abandoned his rabbi, his teacher, in that darkest hour. And so Jesus wants to give Peter an opportunity to to re bolster how do i say this uh to uh to re- reassure in himself to recommit to this very real and, and very honest truth that peter has been living by for years of his life now jesus i love you now remember that the biblical word for love is uh much less about a feeling and much more about a posture towards someone and an engagement for the well-being of another. It has much more to do with action. It's a verb, right? Uh, the, the idea of love in this text. And so um, in this text, uh, Jesus' response each time is quite relevant. Uh, he's asking, do you love me? And Jesus, each time after that question and, and Peter's response says, well, this is what it looks like to love me. He says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. He says it three different times. And I love the image that this invokes because a shepherd and taking care of a flock was a very common thing in the first century um, where Jesus lived. And so it, it probably invoked this image of an actual shepherd caring for the sheep. And see, the shepherd would walk side by side with the sheep. The shepherd would walk with day after day, leading leading the sheep. It was an ongoing journey. It wasn't just like a one, okay, I've taken care of the sheep and now I'm done. It wasn't like a task that you could complete. It was this ongoing task of taking care of them, pulling out the thorns when they got caught up in thorns, tending to the wounded, helping um, the the sheep take care of the newborn lambs, all these things the shepherd would do. The shepherd would also protect the sheep. And so he would, the, the shepherds would look out for wild animals and even put their lives on the line to protect the sheep from the wild animals. And one of the primary uh, purposes of the shepherd was to actually guide the sheep to where there was water and where there was grass, where there was the nourishment that the sheep needed. And so Jesus says to Peter, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep, be the shepherd that helps find the nourishment. And I, I'm mixing metaphors here, but I love John because of all the metaphors. Um, earlier on in John, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. They will never be hungry again. And so Jesus is saying, feed my sheep as a shepherd does. Guide them to where there is nourishment, and that nourishment is Jesus. And so Peter here is being charged with walking alongside the flock and, and continually leading them, pointing them to Jesus. And your description of, of love as an action makes a lot of sense in this context because as Jesus calls Peter, he uses action words. He uses verbs like, like take care, tend, feed the sheep. It's not simply you know, hold this title or hold this position, but actually do these things to help the sheep. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. So Jesus asks three times, do you love me? And he answers three times, you know that I love you. John's doing a number of really interesting literary things here that we don't see quite as easily in the English as we did in, as you would in the Greek, uh, were you to spend many years of your life learning to read it there. Um, so uh, he's doing a number of interesting literary things. Um, first of all, uh, we only see two charcoal fires in all of Scripture. Two mentions of a charcoal fire. Now, the first one happened at Peter's betrayal. It says that Peter was standing by a fire. Uh, Jesus is now being tried at Pilate's place. And, and, and Peter is one of the few brave people that's actually near enough to see what's happening. But standing around that fire, Peter was asked three times, do you know Jesus? And they say, no. He says, yeah, but you're from that region. I think you must be one of Jesus' followers. And he says, I'm not one of Jesus' followers. And finally asked a third time, Peter denies even knowing Jesus and swears on an oath, I do not know that man. That's Peter standing next to a charcoal fire. Now, if you were here last week, or if you want to look back a little further in the text there in chapter 21, you'll see now Jesus has appeared on the shore and he's built a charcoal fire. Uh, He's built a fire with coals, and he's invited Peter to come and to share a meal with him. And next to that charcoal fire, and in a similarly public place, like uh, Peter's denial, uh, by a charcoal fire and in a public place, Jesus then asks Peter, do you love me? You see, he's giving Peter an opportunity to kind of undo the past, or or to relive that moment in a new way. Whereas once the answer was, I do not know Jesus, in a public manner, Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to say, I love you, Jesus. You see, the story is coming full circle, and and John, an incredible author, uh, is, is just masterfully weaving this tale together, that we might see this invitation to new life. Peter is being re-invited into the mission and the story of what God is doing. Peter's being reinstated in a public manner. What a beautiful idea. We often talk about God being a God of invitation, but God is a God of constant invitation. It's not like you've got one shot and then you're out. No, constantly re-inviting. That's, that's beautiful. As the text continues, um, we also have this interesting little bit here about the kind of death that Peter um, will die. And there's this expression in here um, says, stretch out your hands. That is a common expression um, of that time to be understood uh, as, well, my words are all over the place, jumbled in a blender. Let me start over. There we go. I'm going to take my lesson from Giovanna there. I'm starting over. So the expression, stretch out your hands, was commonly understood as crucifixion. And so um, Jesus actually tells Peter the kind of death that he will die. Now, there are only um, two of the two disciples' deaths in, recorded in Scripture. So we know Judas, who committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus, and James was killed by King Herod. We, we read about that in Acts. But there are historians who've written about that time that describe the deaths of the other um, apostles. And uh, historians have described Peter's death as he was martyred three decades later after Jesus. And um, he was killed by Emperor Nero, and he was crucified as well. And the tradition says that he didn't feel worthy enough to die the same way that Jesus died. And so he asked to be crucified upside down. And for me, it's just really interesting to think about 
the timeline of this. So you have all this whole story that's happened with Peter, of Jesus calling Peter, and Jesus uh, Peter committing to Jesus, and then the denial, and then coming back and being reinstated, reinvited, and then told that he would die in this way, and then charged to feed the sheep, and then three decades later, he's martyred. And so for, for that many years, he knows about his death, and he still chooses to commit fully to Jesus and to lead the church. Talk about love as an action. That is a demonstration of that. For the next 30 years, not knowing when it's coming, he will stay the course and participate in the work that Jesus has called him back into. There's a bit of a confusing section in there that I want to just mention briefly in verses 20 through 23 there. Um, uh, a strange little dialogue and, and interplay amongst the disciples. Jesus has just described to Peter what his death will look like. And he looks back and he sees John, the author of this book, near them. And he asks, so what about that guy? Uh, what about, what about his death? And, uh, Jesus' response is, is fascinating. First of all, he says, it's none of your business. Stay out of it. Uh, and then secondly. Isn't that true, though, that we're much yeah. more concerned about other people than ourselves sometimes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he's also going to indicate that John's journey does look significantly different than Peter's will. Um, well, you might be called to Peter, Jesus speaking to Peter, well, you might be called to a hard and short life while feeding my sheep, while playing uh, the roles I've called you to play. John might be called to a lifelong journey uh, of historical and theological witness to who Jesus is, because John, in fact, is going to live late into life. What's interesting, though, is Jesus' statement here caused many first-century believers to believe that John would never die. They thought that Jesus had said, no, he's not going to die, meaning maybe Jesus will come back before his death. Uh, but many people started to believe that. And so what's fascinating to me now is to think John, very late in his life, knowing he doesn't have much more time on earth, he will die, uh, again, according to historians of natural causes in Ephesus, still uh, partnering with the church there, um, but knowing that his life is coming near an end, he feels like he has to write this down. Now, he maybe he, uh, but certainly many other people thought he was never going to die. But he finds himself at a moment saying, I might die before Jesus comes back. And so he sits down to write this gospel. And I think what's really fascinating about that, let's assume that Peter th or, or John thought that, that he, he was going to see Jesus return, that he wasn't going to suffer death, but instead witness Jesus return before the end of his life. If we assume that, then John's doing a really interesting thing here. What he's doing is exactly what Jesus told Peter. It's kind of none of your business. He's leaving up to Jesus the discretion as to how this story plays out. In what timing will God come back? And so he very graciously in this text says, uh, says that, uh, that he is playing his... Wait, how, I got to go back. I'm getting get lost. You get to start today. over. Yeah. Yeah. You get to start over. A lot of it's starting totally okay. over here. Uh, if you want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? If I want him to remain alive, uh, you must follow me. 
So many people believed that he would not die. So at the end of the text, though, uh, John uh, is saying, I have written this that you might believe. And not concerned about whether he lives or die, not trying to parse out or defend or change what Jesus had said, he simply leaves the discretion and timing to Jesus and to God as to how this all plays out, including the end of his life. And John also says that every, that if everything Jesus did were written down, that the whole world couldn't even hold all the books. And I love thinking about that because, I mean, there's so many details of Jesus' life written in Scripture for us in the four Gospels, his life and his death and his resurrection. And we get this picture of just the, the goodness of God and the love of God. And we get the big picture throughout Scripture of the narrative of God and God pursuing humanity. And so there's all these details that are amazing, that are selected by these authors with the help of the Holy Spirit to to write down, to help us understand the story and who God is. But John's like, but by the way, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If all the things that Jesus had done, all the ways he had loved people, that he had helped people were written, the world couldn't hold all the books and I am reminded of, of the time that Jesus said, it's good that I'm going because the Holy Spirit is coming and the Holy Spirit will do even more through you and in you. And, and this is one of the reasons why I love hearing uh, people's stories because still today God is doing such good things in our lives that we, we don't even see them all, but we are invited to hear each other's stories and invited to see what God has done and what God is doing. So as we zoom out of the text now and kind of kind of look at the whole story and and we learn about the character of Jesus, uh, God's intent in this world, and we learn about humanity in that place, we begin to ask ourselves, so so what are we called to in this? What do we have in this? Have you ever been forgiven? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I find it's so easy to fight coming to the place in which we realize we need forgiveness. It's so hard to come to a place where we're able just to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I know what I typically do in life, what many of us probably do, is that we kind of try to share the blame. We assume, well, I'm not totally at fault, they're at fault too, and so we assume we can just kind of play it off and never really handle a situation. Have you ever come to the point where you're like, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It's really hard to do interpersonally. But I bring that up because uh, Scripture, the gospel, the good news says that you and I, as we accepted Jesus, as we invited Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, that we have been forgiven. And sometimes it doesn't feel quite as real as that interaction with another person when we humble ourselves to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? But I want to evoke some of that same feeling and imagination in us that we might realize we have been forgiven by God. Just like Peter stands there and, and, and Jesus kind of recreates the whole scene in which he fails so that Peter can live into a new life. We have been given new life. We've been forgiven, invited into a new, uh, re-invited into the story and the journey uh, and the mission of what God is doing in the world. And the question is, how will we engage that? As those who have been forgiven, as those that have been re-invited into the story of God in this world, with what uh, in, in what posture will we do that? Well, the words of Jesus and the posture of John in writing this letter is the first challenge that I find in the text, uh, that we would create space 
that we would learn to trust in God's discretion and in his timing in this world. It's so easy to engage uh, the things of this world around us with this posture of we know what needs to happen and how and when it should happen and to get so disillusioned when we don't. But here's John on his deathbed writing this gospel saying, but I trust God's plan and I'll just tell the story how I experienced it. We too as followers of Jesus are invited into that posture of trusting in God's discretion and his timing in his work in this world. In this text, we're also invited, like Peter, to feed the sheep, to be that shepherd for the sheep, to share the good news of Jesus, and to point people to Jesus. You know, it's interesting as we think about feeding the sheep and that that metaphor, Jesus said also said that I am the good shepherd and that Jesus knows his sheep and the sheep know his voice and he sacrificed his life for the sheep. The interesting thing about this is, as I was reflecting on it, is that we are called to both be a part of the flock, like we are the sheep, and also we are being invited to help shepherd the sheep, shepherd the flock. It's an invitation really to work alongside the good shepherd, Jesus. It's an invitation to be co-workers with Jesus, to actively participate in the mission of God. And this isn't a job for just a select few. Like here are the, here are the three people in the church that are going to do that job. We are all called to, to, to help shepherd as, as the chosen people, the holy priesthood. Remember that passage? We are called to, to use our spheres of influence to point people to Jesus. And so I want to ask us today to reflect a little bit on that. Who might God be calling you to walk alongside? Who do you know is already maybe in your sphere of influence? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe a coworker. Maybe it's some it's a group in our community that God is just nudging you like, I want you to walk alongside this person or this people. I also recognize that, that sometimes when we ask that question, we only think of the people that we already know, the people that we're real comfortable with the people that are in our circles. And God often calls us outside of our comfort zone, outside of those people that we already know to walk alongside people that we don't normally spend time with. And there are a whole lot of groups in our community um, who are marginalized and who need people to walk alongside them that we can learn a whole lot from them. There's also foreign missions, and we don't often talk about that, but God may be calling you um, to mission work or maybe calling you to volunteer with some nonprofit in our area. But I want us to ask that question, who is God calling us to walk alongside? And remember, we are co-workers with Jesus, but we are also a part of the flock. So we also um, are invited to remember that Jesus is the source of our nutrition, that Jesus is the source of our nourishment. We are, as we point people to Jesus, we are also being invited to receive strength and life and rest and hope from him. Are we accepting that along the way? So this is a story of Peter and two charcoal fires, uh, that wherever we're at in our faith journey, 
uh, wherever you're at in your journey, experiencing disillusion like the apostles are, uh, having uh, failed and feeling the shame of that in our lives, um, sitting at the feet of Jesus uh, as they're postured in this tale, wherever you find yourself in that faith journey, uh, Jesus is inviting you. Jesus is inviting you to participate in his good work and to follow him. That applies to you and that applies to me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to be together and uh, again to uh, read from and learn from John, uh, an eyewitness. And uh, God, we're thankful that you are a God of invitation and of re-invitation, that you are a God that forgives, a God who invites us to participate in the good work that you're doing in this world. God, teach us to, with courage and also with hesitation, (laughs) to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.